I want to start out with a, a little piece of doggerel that I wrote uh, for the next Inquiring Mind. It's a little poem called Why I Meditate. And it's uh, inspired by a, a poem with the same title that was written by Allen Ginsberg maybe 30 years ago, 20 years ago. Why I Meditate. I meditate because I suffer. I suffer, therefore I am. I am, therefore I meditate. I meditate because there are so many other things to do. I meditate because when I was young it was all the rage. I meditate because Siddhartha Gautama, Bodhidharma, Marco Polo, the British Raj, Carl Jung, Alan Watts, Alan Ginsberg, Alfred E. Newman, et al. I meditate because evolution gave me a big brain, but it didn't come with an instruction manual. I meditate because I have all the information I need. I meditate because of the largest colonies of living beings, the coral reefs, are dying. I meditate because I want to touch deep time where the history of humanity can be seen as just an evolutionary adjustment period. I meditate because life is too short and sitting slows it down. I meditate because life is too long and I need an occasional break. I meditate because I want to experience the world as Rumi did or Walt Whitman or as Mary Oliver does. I meditate because now I know that enlightenment doesn't exist so I can relax. <laughs> I meditate because of the Dalai Lama's laugh. I meditate because there are too many advertisements in my head and I'm erasing all but the very best of them. <laughs> I meditate because I've discovered that my mind is a great toy and fun to play with. I meditate because I want to remember that I'm perfectly human. Sometimes I meditate because my heart is breaking. Sometimes I meditate so that my heart will break. I meditate because a Vedanta Hindu master once told me that in Hindi, my name Niskar means non-doer. I meditate because I'm growing old and want to become more comfortable with emptiness. I meditate because Robert Thurman called it an evolutionary sport and I want to be on the home team. <laughs> I meditate because I'm composed of a hundred trillion cells and from time to time I need to reassure them that we're all in this together. <laughs> I meditate because it's such a relief to spend time ignoring myself. I meditate because my country spends more money on weapons than all other nations in the world combined. If I had more courage, I'd probably set myself on fire. I meditate because I want to discover the fifth Brahma Vihara, the divine abode of awe, and then I'll go down in history as a great spiritual adept. I meditate because I'm building myself a bigger and better perspective, and occasionally I need to add a new window. There are other reasons. Those are just a few. So, this evening I want to talk to you about your mind, uh, and about my mind, about our mind, really, because we share a moment in evolutionary history, 
and we share a culture and our minds, as much as we may think they are uniquely ours, are actually quite similar. If you exchanged awareness with the person sitting next to you and got to look at, uh, you know, their, what goes through their mind, it would look somewhat familiar. You know, the details might be different. You certainly wouldn't be as attached to the outcome of the drama that you were watching if you were watching somebody else's. might be a good soap opera, but it's amazing how similar our minds are. For me, the most significant shift in my life that has occurred because of my meditation practice has been in the re- my own relationship to my mind. We're still friends, but we're no longer quite so codependent. My first great insights into my mind that I think were were significant happened at my first meditation retreat. And you may uh, be acquainted with these insights. The first one was that there is actually this thing called mindfulness, this quality of our minds that allows us to step out of our own drama and our own psyche and observe ourselves. I mean, when I started meditating, I was 26. I had a college degree. I had done some therapy. But nobody in my culture had told me that you can actually do this and that you have this faculty of mindfulness. First, great insight. The second great insight was that I'm not in control of my own mind. Now, the psychologists have been telling us for a century that, you know, basically the subconscious rules, that we, are, uh, we, are, we, we aren't as in control as we always thought. But when you begin to look at your mind up close and personal in meditation, you really see how independent it can be. I mean, you know, you're sitting there, you're just intending to pay attention to your breath and your mind continues to plan and have fantasies and regrets and without even consulting you, right? It just does it. It's really a a profound insight uh, and an insight that I don't know if you can get anywhere else. It is really powerful to see this. Very few people ever do see it. This is... uh, Tibetan sage Tulku Ergen just died a few years ago. The stream of thought surges through the mind of an ordinary person, often called dark diffusion. In this state, there is no knowledge whatsoever about who is thinking, where the thought comes from, where the thought disappears to. One has not even caught the scent of awareness, and the person is totally and mindlessly carried away by one thought after another. That is the state for most people. Uh, They believe everything that goes through their mind. Uh, And in our culture in particular, we really emphasize believing that you are what you think. You know, Descartes said, "I, I think, therefore I am. You know, that that was proof of his existence. He should have said, I think, therefore I think I am. 
Or perhaps he should have said, I breathe, therefore I am. Because you can breathe without thinking, but you can't think without breathing. Um, but our culture emphasizes thinking. We, we get graded on how well we can manipulate the contents of our mind. And um, we get, I mean, that's, that's the, the big emphasis in our, in our schools. I find it interesting and a little ironic that I spent the first half of my life learning how to think. And now I'm spending the second half of my life learning how to ignore my thinking. <laughs> what was I thinking? I mean, you know. <laughs> but we learn in our, in our schools and in our culture, and as human beings, uh, how to increase the contents of our thinking mind and how to manipulate them and use them. But we rarely look at the process of thinking. And as Tulku Ergen said, at uh, where the thought comes from. Whose thought is it? Where does it disappear to? What is the process? What is the mechanism of our thinking mind? And as a result, we totally believe in every thought that arises. I still, to this day, almost every time I sit down to meditate, and certainly every time I go to a retreat, I, I'm, I'm always a, a little shocked because I realized that until I came and sat down, I was totally absorbed and believing in everything that was flowing through me, totally lost, without any kind of awareness of what was happening. I was lost in the story, in the drama. Now, I don't want to give the impression that I think Thoughts are bad. Thoughts are not bad. Uh, a major misconception in meditation practice is that we want to get rid of thoughts, and uh, that's not the case. Uh, you get rid of your thinking at your own risk. Um, what, we, what we want to do is expose the mind to itself, to really look at the process. Uh, and once we become familiar with how it all works, we no longer are slaves to every thought, every, every mood, everything that, that flows through our psyche. As a species, you know, thinking is our genius, really. It is how we read the world. It is how we learn how to... Uh, we've learned all these uh, complex symbols that we can pass on to each other and to future generations. Uh, a brilliant uh, evolutionary adaptation. But we, we have become um, so enamored with our thinking that we, we regard it as making us superior to every other living creature. This is Darwin from uh, one of his secret notebooks. Why is thought, which is a secretion of the brain, deemed to be so much more wonderful than, say, gravity, which is a property of matter? It is only our arrogance, our admiration of ourselves. Or as Stephen Jay Gould said, an octopus doesn't go around being proud of its eight arms. 
What they are saying is that basically the thinking mind is an adaptive tool. Quite useful. Um, and that's exactly how the Buddha saw it. In all of the Buddhist literature, the thinking mind is the sixth sense. Not that different than sight. It allows us to read the environment at a distance. It allows us to read the environment even in time, through, through time. But it is just another way of sensing the world. And it's very useful to think of it, to regard our thinking mind as that. It tends to demystify and, and depersonalize this process that we take as so much uh, our identity. You know, in, in this culture, heads are us. <laughs> you know, uh, we're like, few of us are very, you know, attached to the body. We're, we're so identified with, our, with, with what goes through our minds. I, and, and, and most of what goes through our minds is, uh, has something to do with survival. I, I suggest some de- sometime take a meditation session and see how many of your thoughts you could categorize as somehow uh, survival thoughts. So all your thoughts about money and sex and uh, your place in the pecking order. Uh, I mean, pretty much all of, all of your thoughts could somehow fit in that category. 30,000 years ago, you know, 20,000 years ago, people's thoughts were like, you know, what color should I paint my spear? And who's going on the hunt tomorrow? And uh, is someone watching the fire? And now your thoughts are about your 501K and, uh, you know, you're going to have enough to retire and uh, what, uh, you know, what are you going to do for a living next year? But it's basically the same stuff, you know, basically the same survival stuff. Now, I have found it very helpful in the practice of self-liberation, in the practice of meditation that we're involved in, to understand what modern science is discovering what cognitive science is discovering about our minds and the way they work. Uh, We are looking at our our mind with mindfulness. The scientists are looking at the brain with CAT scans and PET scans and MRIs and squids, the superconducting quantum interference device. And what they are finding is radical. And not only is it radical, it is very supportive of what the Buddha taught. Really interesting. First of all, most scientists uh, would agree, are discovering that most of our mental processes take place beneath conscious awareness. On what uh, neuroscientist Daniel Dennett calls the subpersonal level. In other words, you are not involved in most of the process of interpreting uh, the world and even making decisions and instigating behavior. 
They are finding that consciousness comes in quite late in the game. You and your so-called consciousness. A now famous experiment by a cognitive scientist named Benjamin LeBay shows that the brain makes decisions for us. He wired all these uh, subjects with monitors, galvanic skin response, and the brain pictures were being taken and all these devices. And he told them simply to move their hand randomly whenever they felt like it. Just, you know, make the decision. I'm going to move my hand now and then move it whenever they felt like it. He found that the brain went into readiness preparation to make the move a half a second before the subject became aware that he or she had decided to move. In other words, he says... LeBay says, what we think of as voluntary actions begin as unconscious cerebral processes. Wait a minute, huh? <laughs> you thought you were doing it all, didn't you? In, in a book called The User Illusion, the author uh, writes, it, this means that our consciousness is fooling us, claiming that it makes the decision." This information runs counter to what our experience tells us. Basically, we are being duped. Now, the neuroscientists say we can't really be aware of our mental processes because of the incredible complexity and speed of them. Your brain processes an estimated 11 million bits of information a second. 11 million bits of information a second. All the information coming from inside of you and from the outside world. That means that right now millions, billions of synapses are firing inside your skull. We hope. <laughs> that is the brain trying to get some comprehension of itself. That is your brain on evolution. 11 million bits of information a second. And they have to be processed and assembled into one conscious picture. Moment after moment after moment. It's, the, the, the scientists are amazed that it does this. They call it the binding problem. How does it? 11 million bits of information a second. And moment after moment, you get one conscious picture of, of what's going on. Full interpretation, full-blown interpretation. A binding miracle. Now, the brain processes all this information through many different brain regions. This is really f fascinating. For instance, loud sounds and quiet sounds get processed in different parts of the auditory center of the brain. In the, in the verbal centers of the brain, nouns and verbs get processed by different groups of cells. In the visual cortex, one group of cells gets activated when you see a face. Another group of cells is activated when you see a face looking at you. And all of these brain regions, say the scientists, are impersonal. They all do their jobs. They get electrical and chemical signals and they pass them on. But they don't know who they're working for. 
As one scientist says, the different brain regions have no more sense of self or soul than your liver. (laughs) All these different brain regions are just doing what they're programmed to do. For example, you notice someone walking down the street towards you. You're, You're walking down the street. Someone's coming. The photons, streams of photons hit the retina of your eye, get turned into electrical signals, sent to the visual cortex, And all the different regions of the brain are in constant resonating communication with each other. So as this image is being assembled, the information is being sent to the memory center going through. Is this familiar? Is this familiar? You know, do we have any? And then it's going to the emotional center. Uh, Do we like this? Is this pleasant? Is it unpleasant? What's this going to be like? And uh, then it's coordinated with all the information coming in from the other senses Uh, sound, plus your intention, how strong was your intention to keep walking on this path as you're walking. And by the time uh, it comes to either wave at the person or cross the street, uh, it's basically a brain jerk reaction. You weren't involved. Based on all your past experience and evolutionary demands, It was decided that you would keep walking, cross the street, whatever you you turned out, whatever it turned out that you do. As cognitive uh, scientist Marvin Minsky, very very famous guy, wrote some very funny books about cognitive science. He says, just as we can walk without thinking, we can also think without thinking. (laughs) Now, the thing that... uh, is so interesting is that in meditation practice, we actually begin to see the nature of the mind and the processes that create our reality. Uh, We see how sort of independent they are of our willing them. And uh, we begin to understand that there's a question about who's really in charge here. And we see the programming, we see the conditioning and how powerful it is. And we actually, as we see it, we begin to gain some freedom from it, some distance from it. The brain is basically, we have to bow to it. It's, it's, it's basically constantly on the outlook for threats and opportunities for us. It's really doing Marvelous work for us. Uh, This is neuroscientist Melvin Connor. The motivational portions of the brain, particularly the hypothalamus, have characteristics relevant to the apparent chronic nature of human dissatisfaction. Experiments suggest that our chronic internal state will be a vague mixture of anxiety and desire, best described by the phrase, I want spoken with or without an object for the verb. That's the way it's set. That's the built-in setting of your brain and your nervous system. I want, with or without an object for the verb. Now, certainly, you have been able to see this in meditation. The constant dissatisfaction that lies at the core of your being Now, you know, you could think of it as, you know, this is a sad thing to see, but it's actually a triumph to be able to see it. Uh, 
we are the first species that seem to be able to, to, to take a good look at how we're built and understand how we're built. The Buddha saw this, that, that we have what he called underlying tendencies. He was basically referring to this quality of our minds that is in continual dissatisfaction, that things could always be better, different, uh, the mind constantly moving for, toward things and away from things. He made it the basis of his second noble truth. He said, this is why we suffer so much. It's not because we haven't fulfilled the latest desire. It's because of that wheel of desire itself that is going around in there. And then the third noble truth, he said, we can actually work with it. We can see it clearly and learn how to be okay and how to calm that instinctual mind that is constantly wanting. That's what the whole process is about. After watching my mind for a number of years in meditation, I began to realize that emotions were really leading in the dance and that every, uh, almost every cluster of thoughts, especially repetitive thinking, if I checked it out, there was always some emotional engine feeding that thinking mind. And more and more as I came to explore my emotional body, my limbic system, if you will, uh, the, the less identified I became with my thinking mind. I dropped into an into a, a identity that was much larger and more inclusive than my individual thoughts. It was a, a mammalian uh, system, if you will. It was the emotional body. And there was a way in which I could hold and be present with that part of me in a much easier and more relaxed way than I could with my thinking mind. I, I started to drop out of the thinking brain more and more out of the story of my life and more and more into the fact of my life. Into uh, what Mary Oliver calls the world of lime and appetite, the oceanic fluids. The part of ourselves that we rarely are in touch with because we're so locked into our individual drama. I think I got in touch with what I would call my species self. I, I began to gain what I call in, uh, evolutionary intelligence. An understanding that built into me are these instincts and these these behavioral tendencies that I inherit from all the life that came before me. I am not my fault. You are not your fault. It really is true. 
And we waste so much time and we suffer so much because we think we created it all. You didn't order this, you know. You didn't order this. You didn't order your body, did you? I don't remember a catalog of choices being offered. You know, would you like eyes in the front and the back? Would you, you know, you just get the standard issue. Nor did you order this brain and nervous system. Evolution is really a great way to understand what you, what you are witnessing in meditation. One of the most important discoveries of the 20th century, not heralded as such, but in certain scientific circles, it is. Uh, Dr. Paul McLean in the 60s, uh, working at the NIMH, was studying the evolution of the brain and discovered that we don't have a brain. We have three brains. We have a reptilian brain, a mammalian brain, and the new human brain, or neocortex, or neomammalian brain. And these brains develop in each of us, in the embryo, in the same order that they developed in nature. First the brain stem, then the mammalian uh, limbic system, and then the neocortex of the new human brain and he also discovered that the later brains don't override the earlier one they're very intimately interconnected and in fact the lower two brains are almost fully engaged 100% we use them 100% in 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 our lives whereas we only use a certain 30 40% of our new human brains capacity is, is fully wired. There is some speculation that we use uh, our new human brain mostly to make excuses for the behavior generated by the other two brains. <laughs> but basically, that's how it works. And, you know, it sounds like a joke. And it is sort of funny, but... There's a lot of evidence now accumulating about how the interpreter program in the left hemisphere of the brain, uh, how we do things uh, based on, you know, all, all our conditioning. And then the left hemisphere, called the interpreter program, weaves whatever we do into our story so that it gives us a sense of integrity and meaning. But that's, that's the basic use that we seem to, to have for the new human brain. We have to remember the emotions reach back about a hundred million years, while cognition goes back a few hundred thousand years at best. We're just really learning how to think. Again, lower brains are not bad. We have to bow to our all of our brains. Uh, you know, the, like the brain stem, the reptilian brain, it handles uh, body temperature, uh, heartbeat, respiration, hunger, sex drive. I mean, if you had to consciously think about all that stuff, if you had to consciously do all that stuff, you wouldn't have time for anything else. I mean, you know, it would be, a, you wouldn't have time to think. <laughs> Let's see. Breathe in, breathe out. Uh, blood, you know, I mean, it would be way too confusing. 
So who ends up making the decisions in your life? Who's, who's living this life, huh? What is becoming clear is that you are not necessary. <laughs> and, in fact, you can't be found. 1995, summer, Time Magazine, a cover story on the latest brain research. The cover story was entitled, In Search of the Mind. And I'm sure a lot of people were surprised to find that it was missing and uh, were even more surprised to find that the scientists cannot locate it. This was the conclusion of this article. I had to take it down. It was, it just, it was really surprising to me. Time magazine. This is the final paragraph of this cover story. Despite our every instinct to the contrary, consciousness is not some entity inside the brain that corresponds to self, some kernel of awareness that runs the show. After more than a century of looking for it, brain researchers have concluded that such a self simply does not exist. End quote. Brain researchers have concluded that such a self simply does not exist. This was Time magazine. Why wasn't there a nationwide panic? Why, wasn't, <laughs> why weren't people leaping out of windows? You see, more and more they're discovering the brain is really a self-organizing system, and it doesn't need you. It doesn't need the director. The neuroscientist Daniel Dennett again. You enter the brain through the eye, march up the optic nerve, round and round the cortex, looking behind every neuron, and then before you know it, you emerge into daylight on the spike of a motor nerve impulse, scratching your head and wondering where the self is. <laughs> now, I was wondering if the scientists who are starting to understand this sort of selfless, process that, uh, that goes on in human beings, if they actually felt a sense of liberation and relief. Um, apparently not so much. Uh, I interviewed a very renowned cognitive scientist a few years ago, also a Tibetan Buddhist, uh, the late Francisco Varela, who, who started a whole new school of biology, very respected, highly respected man. He told me, many cognitive scientists close the door of the lab after studying all day about the selflessness of the brain and go right back to their normal self-absorbed life. He said, the best science can do is give a stamp of validity to the notion of selflessness. His conclusion, you can have an intellectual understanding of anatta, but the emotional root that weaves that understanding into your life can remain absent. And I think that's what we do, partly in meditation, is begin to weave our understanding of, of selflessness, of, of watching the brain go about its machinations. We, be, we see this over and over again, and... Part of us is not rolling in it. Part of us is, is a mindfulness. Part of us is, is, is observing this like a, a scientist would. And we begin to weave into our, the core of our being a sense of ease and a sense of non, 
identification and we don't have to roll in our own repeated drama over and over again. I reminded Varela of uh, what Richard Dawkins said, the famous uh, British biologist. The brain is designed by evolution not to believe in evolution. In other words, the brain really wants to believe in its own uh, power and its own agency when actually it has very little of it. And, and Varela said to me, yes, the brain is designed not to take the Dharma seriously. But that's, of course, when you're not meditating. The Dharma in, in the sense of an intellectual understanding. In meditation, we see that mental life goes on within us and without us, and we learn to be okay with that. We learn to relax our instinctual brain. We learn to be okay with being human, really. We begin to learn a different kind of happiness, the happiness that comes when the mind is relatively calmed and, not, and, and realize that our dissatisfaction lies in the way we are built as animals, as mammals. No blame. No blame at all. But our gift as humans, which the Buddha kept emphasizing over and over again, is to truly see ourselves and free ourselves. No other being seems to have that ability. And it's a rare gift to be born a human being and to be able to see that. Otherwise, you know, you're like the, you know, the animals. I, I remember a friend of mine and I were walking around in Yucca Valley and watching the rabbits and just how constantly fearful and, you know, uh, just how, how much suffering was going on in these cute little bunnies. Uh, and realizing that they did not have the ability to see when there was actual danger and when there wasn't actual danger. It was always set at that, that level. A disciple asked Bodhidharma, please help me quiet my mind. Bodhidharma said, all right, bring me your mind and I'll quiet it. After a moment, the disciple said, but I can't find my mind. There, said Bodhidharma, now I've quieted your mind. So, in this practice of meditation, I think we are, we are really involved in, in what I think of as a revolution in consciousness. And uh, more and more as the science, as Western science and and, and the Buddhist traditions are coming together and sharing information. Uh, it's very exciting, actually. I think it's, it's a very fertile time. And, and we're part of it. You know, we're, we're, all, we're all doing it together. I try to emphasize forgiveness because I really have come to understand that what, that it's not my fault that I can't stay just focused on my breath. It is a mind that has been developed over millions of years and that I am just really starting to awaken to its workings and its origins. And I'm starting to learn how to uh, live with it and live with it with more ease, 
more of a sense of harmony, more of a sense that I'm in this with all the other beings here on this planet, that I'm related to everyone. It's really a powerful, uh, a powerful new insight that's happening. And, and, and to be part of it is, is to feel part of a, of a real important movement that's taking place. We have time for a few questions, I think. I could go on here for a while, but, you know, what do you want to ask or think about? Yeah. Yeah. What is the evolutionary advantage of having such a strong identity of self? I think it's, uh, you know, clearly a sense of survival, a sense of, you know, your, uh, your own, the more you have a sense of your own individual being, existence, uh, you know, the more you want to protect it. Uh, I think that we may have reached a point where, as a, as a culture in particular, but also as a species, that we're out of balance with it. That we now believe so much in our own individual uniqueness that we've lost a sense of, of being part of uh, community, nature, what, what the anthropologists used to call participation mystique. A sense that we are not isolated individuals, but that we are part of uh, groups that we've lost all of that and we've come to a, a place of extreme individualism where, you know, it's very interesting to, to read about and, and there's a lot of books on the subject. Uh, it didn't always feel this way to be somebody. Um, that if you had said to, uh, say, people in, well, even today, you know, certain people in certain tribes or desert nomads, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? They wouldn't know what you were talking about. You know, I mean, there was, there's a sense uh, that, that destiny was not just all about you and that you created your own destiny and you created your own self. I mean, people always said for centuries, God willing, if, if God's willing, then this will happen. But now we seem to think that we have total agency that we are really in charge of our lives which is a which is a setup for for a lot of suffering because if you're really in charge then you think well I can make myself thin enough and happy enough and rich enough and, and uh, but we can never get there so it's a curse in some serious way and my sense of it is that we are really trying we are really hungry to rebalance that excessive individualism. And I think what we, what we do in meditation partly is we really get in touch with our larger identities, the identities that tell us that we're, you know, we're human and that we're animal and that we're just basically living beings and that, you know, there's breath going on here and it, it's not all about the storyline. And I, and I think, 
I think I mentioned it earlier. We, we can drop down from the story of our life to the fact of our life. And uh, in that, in being in touch with the fact of our life, we gain a lot of appreciation, uh, happiness, ease. It's not about our drama anymore. Does that make sense? That's a long answer to your question, but yeah. Um, thanks. Um, you may have just answered, but I want to ask, but I want to ask it anyway. Um, uh, I'm wondering, um, I really appreciate what you said about how we are not, don't believe everything we think. <laughs> Right. Well, I mean, there. It de- depending on how intense the fear and anxiety is. If you know, if I was just doing a daily meditation practice and kind of living with, uh, with a with a certain fear and anxiety, it would be one one way I would deal with it is to is to bow to it. Is when it when I really feel it. You know, acknowledge that it is some part of you that is trying to take care of you. And I think one of the one thing we, we get into these wars with ourselves, where we think, you know, well, this is not, it's not good to have fear and anxiety. I'm going to get rid of it. And it may be that this fear and anxiety will be there your whole life, and it may be, you know, very very deep part of you. So you bow to it, to say it's okay, trying to take care of me. Now, if I was in a, in a meditation retreat or I was doing some more intensive practice, I would really go into the body and feel, I would invite the feelings of anxiety and fear to grow big in, in me. I would say, please, just uh, make yourself alive as, as much as you can. And to see that I can be okay with it, to, to hold it in a kind of mindfulness uh, as much as possible, again, dropping down out of the story of it, the story that triggers it or, or that is a, surrounds it, and to just feel it. Often we go into our head and, and into our stories about our feelings as a way of protecting ourselves from actually feeling it. So to actually start feeling it and being okay with it is, a, is, is how I would, would work with it. Because again, it may it it's going to maybe be there your whole life. I mean, some form of fear and anxiety, we all have it, you know. Uh, and so it's not like you're going to get rid of it. It's it's to in, be inclusive and bring it in closer, and say, I can be with this. This is okay. And if it gets too intense, you know, of course you back off, and then you come and approach it again. It's like the Tibetan. It's like the Tibetan chode practice, where they visualize cutting off the top of their head and making it into a skull and a skull bowl and they put their essence in it and then they turn the the difficult emotion like fear into a demon 
you know, visualize this, you know, with the fangs and the hair on fire. And they say, come, eat, you know, to eat your fill of me. You know, really consume me. And uh, so rather than the, than the idea of killing the dragon on the hero's journey, you, you bring the dragon in. And, and then, you know, he eats and then he goes to sleep and it's all right, you know. Something like that. <laughs> uh, yeah, one, two, and then back there. You, you talked about individuals seeking community. How about individuals seeking structure and how the Dharma relates and, and the notion of karma and all of that? Thinking, we seek, you're, you've alluded to the notion that we need community because we're too individualized. But I think also there are times when we don't really recognize that we need structure and we're seeking that as well. And it seems the Dharma provides rules for living. And Karma talks about the consequences of not following those rules. Mm-hmm. I think you're absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't quite understand the, the, the question in there. I mean, yes, I think it's true. The Dharma provides a certain structure for our lives and uh, and, 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 and community and uh, it's hard for us to acknowledge that. Uh-huh. You know, it's free-thinking, uh, liberal uh, But we're here. <laughs> you know, I mean, we find something here that, you know, that that is bringing us something. It's giving us something. And we may not even be fully aware of what it is yet. And it may come down the road that we, we, we realize what we've been seeking Um is maybe something different than what we, we think we're seeking right now. Well, I think what happens is the conscious mind has taken us to such personal, uh, selfish desires that we like, we forget about all that other stuff. We've just got our nose you know, pointed in a particular direction at a particular time, make the wrong choice, and boom, all of these things turn wrong for us. And it's really hard for us to find a way without this, I think, to follow some sort of rules that we, uh, we may have to make a, a momentary sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Make a choice to get against that, that right. desire. Yeah, I think you're right. We have to we have to sometimes uh go against the current as as the Buddha said, you know, we we are going against the current. In that uh we're we're defining happiness really as something different than what the culture defines it as. Way in the back I really think the part about uh, the consciousness arising a half a second after the emotion, because that's a really, it's a useful tool for understanding that the brain is largely commentary. Like the thinking mind is commentary on what's already happening. And uh, what I'm looking for is a way to hold intention within that same framework. You know, like if, if these are already set in motion, is this something that the being has already set in motion and then the thinking mind is commenting with intention upon the direction in which we're going. Yeah, I, you know, I kind of understand your question and I, I kind of don't know the answer. Uh, I can guess, you know, I mean, I could probably BS for a little while, but um, I think, I, I remember uh, reading about studies that were done on meditators. Uh, and they found that people who had just gotten out of a meditation course, their reaction time was actually better 
was quicker than people who hadn't been meditating. Um, now, I, I think that what this, this weaving of our understanding into our being, into the emotional root, as, uh, as Francisco Varela talked about, uh, takes a long time. It's a, it's a really long process. And to be able to catch an action and sort of understand that it's not going to lead to, it's going to lead to suffering in some way and to make the intention not to do it is a, is something that takes a while to sort of integrate, uh, to, to know what makes you happy, to know that, you know, not um, racing to get ahead of everybody on the freeway. To know that that's just going to make you tense and crazy. And then to be able to calm yourself and move that way, drive that way. I mean, it's a whole series of, of um, understandings that, that are required there. And, and, you know, this whole thing is so... Uh, this is such a big project. <laughs> Uh, I mean, not only ourselves, all of our, all of humanity is a huge project and not doing well either. It's way, it's way uh, over budget. Um, <laughs> but just to, to remember that you're working with a brain that is, has been pr millions of years in the making. I mean, the, the, the scientists... The evolutionary scientists say that basically we're still working with brains designed for members of small tribes of hunter-gatherers. Which explains our addiction to shopping, yeah? Uh, you know, if it's out there, you just go get it because, you know, it's out there. Uh, but to remember that and to all... And to, and, and to remember that and be forgiving of yourself in the, in the act of meditation and in your life to really begin to embrace our condition at this moment and make the intention to awaken further. I mean, that's all we can do. But uh, to not get down on ourselves because, you know, we mess up all the time. We are going to mess up all the time. I, I know of no one who does, does it right. Yes. Um, I am done a little bit of study and been kind of blown away with realizing that the immune system is this doorway of self, not self, that uh -huh. screening and chewing up things that aren't supposed to be there, and then it goes haywire sometimes and starts chewing up things that are us, or it doesn't guard, and then we get cancer or whatever, and I just wondered if you had any thoughts about the immune system in that way. Uh, no, I don't really. I, I mean, I'm amazed when I read about it. The immune system is just such a phenomenal system. And, you know, I, I think, what, there are millions of different kinds of cells that, that you know, have different targets, you know. I mean, it's the, the complexity of the body. I mean, we, life has gone from a single-celled being to a being with a hundred trillion cells that's you. A hundred trillion cells all working together for this one, for the good of this one entity. I mean, you know, they're getting their 
they're they're surviving too. I mean, that's what they're in it for. But uh, we are phenomenal. We're phenomenal. I I I am very uh, dedicated and and excited by finding the spiritual message of science because I why leave science to the just to the scientists you know and the engineers they'll just build bombs and stuff you know the message of science is our spiritual message of science is very profound it it talks about how we're related to everything that lives uh, DNA cell related uh, you know uh, and and the complexity of us as as human beings to have it happen randomly by chance something's going on here i mean i don't know what it is but you know the mystery is as close as our own breath and our own consciousness it is here with us all the time and if we pay attention to it as the mystery as the wonder and feel it resonate in our in our being we can we can be delighted with just being alive. We won't need to consume so much then, and we won't, you know. I mean, I think we really need to want different things. And what we're starting to do here in, in meditation is learn a different kind of satisfaction, and and you know, it's a hopefully it's a seed that will that will spread and grow. Um, okay. How long? We just have another ten minutes or so. I want to read a poem before we go. I was wondering if you have a, um, a bibliography or what, you know, what you're there, There's a bibliography in, my, in the back of my book, Buddha's Nature, which is about evolutionary science and Dharma. Uh, and I, I have some of my favorite books back there in there. Um, it's you know we're we're going through a revolution in the biological and evolutionary sciences that is uh, i mean it's equal to any other revolution in the history of of humankind and we are starting to understand stand so much about ourselves there there and there's a wealth of books and out there that are really exciting um just see if i can think of one or two um, well, the biologist E.O. Wilson on human nature is a wonderful book. Um, that book I mentioned in my talk, The User Illusion, really interesting about the brain research. Um, Brian Swim and Two other people wrote a wonderful book called uh, Life. I think it's just called Life or The Story of Life, which is kind of a, a condensed version of evolution and uh, elements and molecules and atoms and cells and everything. Everything's in there. Okay, one more and then... Is that there's something to watch 
And, uh, you know, I begin, it, it begins to seem as if that, that this consciousness is separate from, you know, that the, that the consciousness of anger is in itself anger, or the consciousness of fear is afraid. Right, right. What on earth is Right, well, that's, that's the thing. That's the thing. That's the thing. That's, and that's, the scientists don't have a clue. It's, it's like a consciousness itself, awareness itself, is a total mystery. They call it the hard problem. That's what they, of consciousness. And they don't know what it is. The mystics basically bow down to it. They say, this is the ground of being this awareness and in uh, what what's beautiful in meditation is that as you begin to uh, grow in a, re- in a in a retreat with concentration you begin to get glimpses of pure awareness without any object in there without any thoughts or anything going on in it and and you can actually start to rest more and more in that just knowing and it's it, you it's a very very wonderful place to be to rest <laughs> okay Rumi the dream that must be interpreted this place is a dream only a sleeper considers it real then death comes like dawn and you wake up laughing at what you thought was your grief and this groggy time we live in this is what it's like A man goes to sleep in the town where he's always lived, and he dreams he's living in another town. In the dream, he doesn't remember the town he's sleeping in his bed in. He believes the reality of the dream town. The world is that kind of sleep. The dust of many crumbled cities settles over us like a forgetful doze. But we are older than those cities. We began as a mineral. We emerged into plant life and into the animal state and then into being human, And always we have forgotten our former states, except in early spring when we slightly recall being green again. Humankind is being led along an evolving course through this migration of intelligences. And though we seem to be sleeping, there is an inner wakefulness that directs the dream and that will someday startle us back to the truth of who we are. Humankind is being led along an evolving course through this migration of intelligences. And though we seem to be sleeping, there is an inner wakefulness that directs the dream and that will eventually startle us back to the truth of who we are. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.